Great. Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Great to see you all. Thank you for uh, attending today, especially if you are uh, new to our church. As uh, Ellen said, welcome uh, especially to you. Thank you for joining us for one of our gatherings this morning. My name is Chris, if I didn't say that. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are in uh, actually a new sermon series today on the Gospel of Luke. Um, Today is the first of six sermons, five weeks if you count um, Good Friday. Uh, We're going to have this, this leads right up uh, to Easter Sunday, so uh, six weeks is a longer gospel account. Most of you are aware of that. It will not be the whole book, but some select passages that will focus on, uh, so three weeks on pre-suffering week or Passion Week narratives and parables, including this week, and then three weeks in the Passion Week narratives themselves, or three sermons, rather, in the Passion Week narratives themselves. So uh, that's kind of what we have to look forward to. Uh, It'll be fun, hopefully six weeks for us or five weeks. Uh, as we uh, move our way through um, a portion of this. And last year, too, in the Gospel of Mark, if you were here for that, it's kind of a fun thing to do uh, for the latter half of Lenten season. So uh, we're going we're gonna to do that again. Uh, today, we're going to look at Luke 14, 12 to 24. If you want to turn there in a Bible you have or a phone app, that would be great. I'll read this in full here to begin. But it is a parable that is unique to Luke, Matthew has uh, a version of it that's more of a wedding feast, not just a banquet, more of a specific bent towards a wedding theme. Luke's is not that. Uh, so kind of similar, but there's uh, definitely some specific lessons that Luke has here uh, for us as well. So very uh, unique to the Bible, story, parable. Parable essentially means story, kind of with a lesson to it. Jesus speaks in parables before he dies on the cross, but not after, which is interesting. Uh, he does not cloud things uh, at all. The Bible doesn't cloud things at all after the, uh, the, the cross, but they are a little bit foggy beforehand to kind of tell us that things are unclear until Jesus dies and clarifies who God is, what he's really up to in the world, and so forth. So if you ever feel like the Bible moves from foggy to clear, you're totally right. It does. It moves from kind of unclear, not quite sure what this is saying, you know, God speaking from behind a veil, the Bible literally says, to when Jesus comes, the veil's totally lifted. And so that's why we can understand this parable actually with clarity. It's because we're on this side of the cross. The clarifying lens has been given, and we can actually see with clear eyes now. Uh, so anyway, that's a little bit off subject, but um, in case you're wondering. Uh, but the parable itself, though, of course, is, uh, stands is um, kind of indicative of what the kingdom of God is like. It speaks to what our realities are like as Christians. If you're not a Christian yet, still speaks to your reality as someone invited to this great feast, uh, God being the host. That's kind of what the big picture is. So um, I'll say more after I read it, but let me just kind of leave it there to begin, and we'll start here in verse 12. There's some context to it Luke gives, and then, and then Jesus uh, starts to speak in, in parable form. So let's talk, and we'll start in verse 12. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, so he's having dinner with someone, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant out to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But the all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. All right, so essentially a couple of words on context here. Um, I put up the first couple of verses, including the first part of verse 16, um, which you can see starts with but, so it's kind of a contrast to what comes before. Uh, so really what's going on here is that Jesus is having dinner with some people and he uses it as a, a context, really, or an opportunity to teach about God's kingdom and what type of hospitality is most valued in it, which is a truly radical form of it, actually, and so more on that later. But as he's teaching, someone at the table leans back and just says, man, it's going to be so good for us to dine in God's kingdom, isn't it? Maybe expecting people to kind of raise their glasses to that statement uh, for a toast. When Jesus kind of interjects and responds with a but, uh, meaning essentially Jesus is kind of saying here why, to the guy, why are you assuming that you'll be there? Which is kind of a, you know, might, that might seem kind of cold or disconcerting for Jesus to say that. But in the Bible, if you don't know this, when Jesus warns, when the Bible warns in general, the New Testament authors, God, Jesus is the Son of God, he does so in love and always mixes the gospel in. So the gospel becomes the crux of the argument and the thing for worriers to hold on to if the teaching has, in fact, caused them to worry. All right, so hopefully you see that kind of as we go on, but that serves as a bit of a, a heads up for what's next. Um, one thing I do want to say, though, too, before we dive into the actual uh, text is to give kind of a cheat sheet here. Uh, the best way to start, I think, to preach parables is just to clarify on who the main characters are in the, the metaphorical story. So if it wasn't clear, uh, God is the host in this parable. Jesus is the servant who goes out to say dinner's ready uh, to everyone. Humankind as a whole are those who are invited. Uh, and in context too, there's uh, some of you might be aware of this, but in context Jesus as a Jewish man uh, speaking to a primarily Jewish audience is saying this story to proud Jewish people who just think they'll have a place at God's table because of their bloodline. And so Jesus once is kind of poking back at that and saying, you know, to be a person of God is not a genealogical thing, it's a faith thing. Uh, and he gets more clear on that later, as does the rest of the New Testament after he dies and rises again, but that's kind of being poked at and suggested here as well. So in one sense, the invited are Jewish people, and the subsequently invited uh, people uh, in the outskirts are Gentiles or non-Jews who are invited afterwards. So in one sense, that's a big thing going on here. In another sense, it's much broader than that. And so I, I want to mention that to kind of hang your hat on that because uh, some of you might be, have heard it taught that way before and that's not wrong. It's just there's a lot more going on here too. When we as readers see ourselves in both types of people. All right, some more on that later. Number four though is that the banquet then itself is just a picture of heaven on earth. It is a picture of salvation. So the message of the gospel goes out. Some receive it kind of, but then eventually grow bored with it and don't go to the banquet when the second invitation comes. But then others actually receive it and eventually, you know, uh, quote-unquote, attend 
the, the dinner of salvation. All right, so that's kind of what's happening here too. There, there's a nod to this being a present reality in Christ and a nod to this being a future reality too when Jesus comes back and fully saves or fully brings us in, establishes the kingdom. And a lot of Jesus' parables kind of talk about the future uh, as well, but not solely so. Uh, there's a lot of present reality too uh, for us as we'll see. But really, it breaks down into two primary lessons, I think. There is a warning and a grace. There's a warning to hear in love, and there is a grace or a good news component to these as well. Classic Jesus, he does this a lot uh, in his teachings. Uh, not, not to say that other New Testament authors don't. They certainly do. Uh, warning and love and gospel go a, a lot together sometimes. Um, but that's certainly the case here. A warning and a grace, but each of those things have different expressions in the parable as well. So uh, let's just break it all down. We'll start first with the warning. And there are two expressions of the warning, I think. They're kind of saying the same thing, but a little bit different angles. The first is, this parable is a warning against putting confidence in ourselves or in the flesh. Remember, Remember, the man in the parable is saying at dinner, I'm so, basically, I'm so glad I'm going to be there. <laughs> it's uh, twisting his words a little bit, but that's essentially why Jesus contrasts that statement with the, the parable, which kind of just pushes back against that confidence uh, a little bit. So, but now, to be clear, this is not teaching that we can't be assured of our salvation in our future hope when we believe in Jesus, because we certainly can. But it is a cautionary tale about trusting too much in ourselves. Paul uses this phrase, actually, who was another New Testament author in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 3, which he says there, we as Christians boast in Christ Jesus, and as we do that, we put no confidence in ourselves. Kind of like when you're putting confidence in Jesus, you are at the exact same time not putting confidence in yourself or what you do or how you contribute somehow uh, to your salvation or, or future hope. So Paul's just saying, reminding Christians that that's the case, right? We boast in what God has done. We don't boast in ourselves. We put confidence in Christ's work on the cross when he died for our sins, but we don't put confidence in our lives, even as, as uh, Christians, which, again, is to say we don't put confidence in our works, uh, our moral works and so forth. This reminded me of uh, James 4. Some of you guys know this. Uh, where where it says there in the New Testament, where he actually says, some of you guys as Christians talk like this. You say, tomorrow I'm going to move to this city and meet someone, maybe get married, start a family, or at least get this job and you know, start this new hobby. And, and my whole life's planned out. I'm super excited about it. I wrote it out. You know, it's like this 12-point you know, bulleted outline. And James is saying, you guys who say that, you shouldn't talk like that because how do you even know you're going to be alive in two minutes? You have no idea. Why are you like having this much confidence about your works, your plans, your ambitions, you know, what you do with your life? You, you, have, you have no idea. Instead, and I'm quoting right now from James 4, 15 to 16, James says, you ought to say it this way. You ought to say, or talk this way as a Christian. You should say, if the Lord wills, if Jesus wills, if, if, if he wills that we do this or that, then, then we will have it. But he says, as it is, you guys boast in your arrogance. And I think the man in Luke 14 has this type of way about him. The parable's point then, in part, uh, might also have a James 4 tinge to it. Almost as if the point is to say, 
you know, what you mean to say is what you should say, man at the table, raising a glass to his confidence, uh, you know, dying at the table of God. What, what you should say, what you mean to say is, if God wills, if he allows it, then it will be good to eat bread in his kingdom. But as it is, I'm an unworthy participant to receive it. Or maybe if it was in prayer form, uh, what, what we should say is, God help me to eat bread in your kingdom. Please help me to get there. Help me to have a place at the table. Or again, isn't it amazing that we're invited at all? You know, cheers to the host who gave us a, table, a place at the table when, when we didn't deserve it. But that's not how this man is talking, right? He's putting confidence in himself as a man or as a human being who maybe self-perceives as good, where Jesus says, well, it's not, that's not how it's going to work. Uh, it's, uh, and then he gives the parable, right, which grace is the predominant theme here. Not, not karma, not reward-based living, um, but rather grace. So more on that with the second point. Before we get there, there are one more angle on the warning is, it's a warning, this parable is a warning against making excuses. I read one uh, commentator actually on this passage, a modern commentator who actually calls this parable the parable of the excuses, which I'd never heard before. That's kind of interesting, you know. The parable of the great feast is actually a, just something that translators put in, right, like as a subhead. So it's not actually part of the, the, uh, the gospel of Luke, but, and so we're, we're free to uh, mess around with that. But he's just saying, you know, as a commentator, he's just saying, I think that's kind of the big thing here. This is a story, a parable, about making excuses. So, so this, of course, refers to the three people who said, I just bought a field, and I just bought seven, uh, some oxen, and I just got married, respectively, so uh, I can't come to the feast. Uh, you know, I'm going to renege on my RSVP, I'm out, I can't make it. Um, so these are example, examples of people then who are initially invited, just to be clear. But when the second invite comes, they don't follow through with their yes because other interests outweigh the banquet. Uh, if you guys know Jesus' parable of the, the four soil types or the parable of the sower, like say in Mark 4, among other places, uh, it's very similar. Where there Jesus says, you know, a farmer sows seed and some falls on the soil type that's a little bit you know, it's good at first, but then these thorns grow up around the seed of salvation growth. Uh, it's an agrarian metaphor, you know, for our, our, our salvation. But the thorny vines choke out the life of what looked good in the beginning. So there's no fruit ever born from that vine. And so uh, we, we might start well as Christians, but not finish well. Start well by belief, but not finish well you know, by belief. Start well with the gospel and grace, but not finish well with that. But the idea is, in between that, those two things, the cares of the world, the Bible says, uh, you know, choke out. I, I think this is the same thing, really, right? Just a different parable, a little bit different way of saying it, um, but that's kind of the, the big idea. And I'll say, too, just kind of as an aside for us as 21st century uh, people who lived in the year 2020 uh, and 2021, readers of this parable, I think... Um, a pandemic era could be a special context for these alternative interests to sprout up and entice us. And I, I know we've been saying that a lot this past year. I'm not going to spend a lot, actually much more time at all on that today, but I did want to not miss the opportunity to say that. I think that, you know, when you live in a pandemic away from Christians, away from the church, um, this is a special warning, a bent on this warning that I think we need to hear is, is how is that happening, or what excuses, or what vines are choking out the, the, the growth of the gospel. 
in our lives. And just to not be around the church, it just happens. It has happened. We've seen it happen. We've all probably felt it starting to happen at least. Um, and so I think uh, we need to just be mindful of that, I, I think. So anyway, uh, but, but back to the parable though. I, on one level, I think the point of this, the way Jesus frames it, is it's meant to be kind of silly. And by that I mean, isn't a huge party more fun than inspecting oxen? You know? And, and I don't know if some of you really like oxen. So maybe you're like, no, that's a party. For me, is inspecting livestock. Maybe it is. That's, that's fine. But I think in general, those are probably exceptions, not the rule. And so, like, like, if we think, if we heard, guys, guess what? You're invited to this, you know, the best party, the, the best meal you'll ever have. All your friends are there. And it's starting right now. Let's go. Like, if that was the message we got, and then, you know, or we heard, and someone said, actually, no thanks, I just got some concrete poured, and I need to watch it and make sure it cures properly. Like, you'd probably say, what in the world is wrong with you? You know, like, that's not normal behavior. Like, that's not how normal people think, right? At least we'd rip on that person for that. And I think that's part of the point. Sin is silly. It deceives us. We don't think we're being duped, but we are. And, and it's offensive to the inviter, right? Like if I told uh, Spencer, Pastor Spencer, to hang out, or if I asked him to hang out, and he said no because he needed to inspect his couch for tears in the fabric, I'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, I'd say, ha-ha, funny, right? Or I'd say, ouch. Actually, I'd probably say this hurts because what you're really saying is you don't want to hang out with me, Right? That's what this parable is also about. It's about the heart. These people don't want to be at the party. They're making excuses. Because you can obviously wait to inspect land. You can obviously wait to inspect oxen. They'll still be there tomorrow. And you can bring a wife to a party. Add her as a plus one. Just bring her along. These people are making excuses because they don't want to be there. And so this is in part like there, there is an invitation to look at our heart and say, do we actually want to be saved? Do we want to be close to God um, as, as believers? Or is there something enticing us away from that? Because that's actually kind of the key. Are we known by him? Do we know him, right? Not what you do for him. That doesn't matter. What he does for you and how much you're moved by that, right? And how much you trust and cast yourself upon that. Also notice, these people are replacing the party with with other interests, but the other interests are actually good things, right? I mean, at least they're morally neutral. Notice none of them are saying, yeah, I got the invite, but actually, sorry, on my calendar today, I have going out to murder someone, so sorry, I'm busy. Like, that's not, there's not, not bad things in the way of people going to the party, good things in the way of people going to the party. And such is the case for us as, as Christians. A lot of times it's good works or it's good things or it's God's good gifts that we make into God, but the gifts are not God, right? And that, that can become the thing that eventually trips us up. But that's a key thing to see here is that in the parable, it's good things that are keeping people away from salvation. The excuses obviously are bad and this a heart issue thing is bad, obviously, but that aside, these are good things that get in the way. And that's part of the warning here, is for us to say, what are those things for us uh, in life? And I'm guessing something has come to mind, even as I say that now. And if not, it's fine. Just keep thinking about it, you know, and praying about it. But 
what, not bad things, we all know, uh, you can kind of easy, more easily classify those things, and there's a time to talk about those things, but I mean good things, what good things are we making into excuses um, instead of like actually going to dine with God and persevering in the faith. And actually, too, one more layer to this, uh, if you think about it, if you look closer at those three things, Jesus chooses to put these three things in as excuses into his parable because he himself elsewhere in the Bible is likened to those things. Meaning, Jesus is like a field. He calls himself land, like land, or like the land of salvation linguistically uh, elsewhere in the Gospels. He is the ultimate promised land, the Bible teaches, himself. Uh, He is also like an ox because oxen were used as slaughtered sacrificial beasts in the Old Testament. More specifically, he is like a lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he's also like a bridegroom. He's like a spouse. He calls himself a groom because he is the husband of the church. And so Jesus is not randomly out of the air for no reason picking these three things out. He's choosing them because he is the best versions of them. And he's doing that to say that when you grasp for them, you're grasping for counterfeit versions of me. Or at least shadows of the better thing, which is me. Field, oxen, and spouses are not bad things. They're gifts, right? Like like we said before. But there are better versions of those things out there for us. And what a tragedy if we reject the better version, especially after we know it exists. I I think these people in the, the excuse makers are like people who obsess over a picture of the Grand Canyon uh, and yet reject the invitation to actually go see it for free, right? We'd say, that's stupid, right? And And so it is stupid to reject Christ for the sake of the things that mimic or point us to him or serve as shadows of him Gifts that remind us of him, uh, to centralize those things, of course, would be, could serve as the very things that, that trip us up um, uh, themselves. And so that's kind of the, the circuitous and the dangerous sort of route we take as Christians as we're, we're wholesale receivers of God's good gifts and yet simultaneously called to not see them as the main thing, but to see them as like reflections of him, right? Things that point to him but to keep them in that place and enjoy them as gifts, but to worship the gift giver. Those are very different things, right? But they kind of look similar sometimes, enjoying God's good gifts versus worshiping them or using them as excuses, you know, uh, could be misunderstood, uh, put it that way. So anyway, with that said, let's move on to the next section, which is the grace section. Uh, Again, there's three expressions of grace I think we see here. The one has to do with our, our, our identity. and So one flip we have to make when reading this parable is from seeing ourselves in the excuse givers to seeing ourselves in the subsequently invited ones. The, the lame, the blind, the poor, the lost. Even if you're here not a Christian yet today, um, you're in that bucket. We're all in the same bucket, Christian or not, in one sense. That's us. No matter how much health or money we have, we are spiritually incapacitated. Worse than that, we're dead. And that's kind of the bad news, good news thing, right? It's bad news, obviously, but good news because it underscores how then we must be saved by the gracious work of Jesus Christ in the world, what he did for us, 
versus anything we could ever give to him. And so when we talk about our identities as Christians, there's a lot of identity stuff here that I don't think is like made the main point necessarily, but we talk a lot as identities, we should, because it's helpful, it's um, sacramental in a way, and it's true. Uh, but our identities as Christians, but it, I, I think when we do that, it needs to, our answer to who we are is it needs to fold into both we are paralyzed and we're loved at the same time. We're blind and we're children of God at the same time. We're sinners and we're forgiven and we're saints and holy at the, because of what Jesus did for us at the exact same time. And I know that for a lot of you, that goes without saying. You, you understand that. We, the Bible talks a lot about that. And yet, it's really hard to kind of exist in that space of really believing both. And big-time dangers occur when we go off the trail into the thickets of just one of those things. But a lot of times, uh, Christian teaching in various settings will only focus on one. And I mean like enduringly so, and it leads to all kinds of bad theology. Um, but we're both. And that's good for our soul, I think. Kind of as an aside here, I, uh, I was listening to, uh, Ellen mentioned our podcast during the welcoming time. Uh, Marin, our kids ministry leader, uh, was interviewed this past week, and it's actually live now if you want to listen. I asked her permission to say this. Uh, but she, I thought it was great. When, when she just made a, a passing comment about when she got married, it just kind of showed, showed her how terrible of a person she was. And I was like, oh, you're here, man. I hope it's okay that, yeah, you didn't go back on that, did you? Because there it is. It's out there, yeah. No, but, but I said, but, and yet she, she would say, yet yeah, still loved, right? And, um, and I, like, when I heard that, I thought, gosh, it's so good. I, I mean, how many times have I said in my mind, why in the world did Aletha want to marry me? You know, like, I don't even, and I think, oh, well, she loves me. Right? And then I kind of, like, go on with my life, right? But I think, like, logically, I, I, I mean, I've asked that question a thousand times in my 19-year marriage uh, to her. But I, but I think um, getting married reveals your sin. When you enter into a covenant with someone 24-7, you're like, oh man, yeah, I was selfish before, but I didn't have this constant thing where I'm realizing how selfish I am, how much I want my way and not to give to my spouse, right? Or, and it could go on and on and on. But just, So anyway, I say all this to say, and I was thinking about it this week, because in the same way, marriage to Christ spiritually, reveals our sin every day. Do you understand that? When we marry Christ spiritually, it, it, it exemplifies how bad we are. You know, not to feel bad about ourselves because we're loved, because that goes up too, right? We truly understand that we're saved by grace, not by works. When we constantly are confronted with what God had to spend to pull us up from the pit of hell. It doesn't, like, make us look better. It actually makes, you know, in the same way human marriage does this, spiritual marriage, I think, does this too. And I think progress then in the Christian faith, maturity, has to do with embracing these dualities and tension every day. Not as freedom to sin, but as means by which we cast ourselves up against the rock of ages, who is Christ, all the more. And we can't do that if we think we're a good person. But instead, as a means by which we, again, cast ourselves up, right, against the rock of ages. So that process I think being a big part of what makes us holy and sanctified, not by what we do so much, but by our closeness to God because he's the only holy being in the universe. He is our sanctification, holiness, the Bible says in 
1 Corinthians 1.30. So to be holy is to draw near to God through Jesus every day. And the only way to truly stay in that space is to preserve our identities as paralyzed and loved, wretch and saint. And the only way to do that is to keep hearing the gospel preached to you over and over and over again until your dying breath and mine. All right? But I digress. That was kind of a big digression. All right. But back to the parable, though. That's a bit... So to start with this, seeing our identities the right way, ourselves and the outcasts, is where we start. The second layer is Jesus says that the banquets of the kingdom... This is huge. The banquets of the kingdom are designed specifically around the issue of non-repayment. Did you guys catch that? And if you did, if you forgot, let me just read this again. Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor. So don't invite your friends, first of all. It's like, dude, I want to invite my friends, right? So it's kind of like, it's supposed to be a little bit of a rub. But anyway, we'll come back to some of that. Invite, so don't invite the rich or the poor or people you, you know. Invite strangers. Invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the lame. Invite the blind. And you'll be blessed. And here's the key. Why will you be blessed? Or why is that a good thing? Why do these types of meals exist? Because they cannot repay you. Jesus is saying, I want meals in the kingdom that put that on center stage all the time. And that's kind of what he's sort of doing here, but also teaching is, this is the quote-unquote banquets or feasts of the kingdom. This is what I want them to be like. Now, He's not saying that meals with friends are bad. That's obviously good. The Bible talks about that elsewhere. We are to dine with our friends in the church. We are to dine with people we know in the church. We are to dine with our neighbors for the sake of reaching them for Christ, right? And Or if they're Christians, to join in them in thanksgiving for what God has given. All those things are biblical good things, but that's not here. Here Jesus says, don't do that. Or sometimes, sometimes you're not called to do that. Sometimes they should look like this because... Those types of people cannot repay you. That's what I like. God likes contexts where generosity is shown and people are absolutely in every way incapable of paying people back for that generosity. That's what God likes. That's what he wants to be shown because that's what the gospel is. Another word for not being able to pay is grace, right? Jesus wants grace to be put on, on the centerpiece of the table, uh, not our payment back to the host, which would be to say, we pay the host back with our goodness. That is the uh, antithesis of Christianity. And so this is why he's saying this, is I want dinners that have no, not only no repayment, but the impossibility of repayment. To put it another way, the banquets of the kingdom are one-way hospitality, not two-way. Jesus brings in specifically those who are unable to work versus those who have worked to get married or to buy land or to inspect livestock. Those people have worked, but they don't get in. It's those who are incapable of working who get in. Blind people can't work. Crippled people can't work. Poor people can't buy. Those are the ones who get in because those are the ones, spiritually speaking, who know their sickness and know their need who have a place. It's those who think they have something to do, something to prove, something to do for God, a tower to heaven to build, a la Tower of the Babel, or something like that. It's those that, have the, that are running well 
but then there's this huge root in the, in the off-beaten path, and they trip right over it, never, never to get up, because they started to have confidence in themselves. So the I have done this mentality of the excuse makers is a warning. It's, I would say, the mark of the damned, the mark of the, the, mark of the hellbound. The smileless focus on the works of the body versus the humble, empty-handed reception of God's offer of grace. One last angle on this, which is, um, again, to kind of say the same thing, but if you look at the servant and the host, the servant in the parable who is Christ, it's clear that the servant initiates the invitation and the bringing in of the people, not us. And so look at, I would say, look at in this parable the veracity by which Jesus is sent. The urgency and the persistence. And one thing you see here in this parable is you guys, you guys should see your story, uh, if you're a Christian especially, um, that this is what happened before you were saved, is God's fierce and relentless desire to fill his table with sinners like you and me. You know, like, it's not like God didn't want to save us. We can't say that from a parable like this, right? What is God like? That's one of the best theological questions you can ever ask. What does the Bible tell us he's like? What are his characteristics and what are they not, right? But this is like one of those, this is what he's like uh, parables. He's like a God who wants to save, who can't wait to save. Is that how you think of him? Or does he just kind of tolerate you? and watch you from a distance to see if you'll screw up today. You know, that's not what you see here, right? Isn't that amazing news? And if you're having trouble believing that, then I would point you back to the parables here, I mean, anywhere in the Bible, really, but this parable and say, let this inform your view of God, not what you think he's like. Because what we think he's like is always going to be wrong. But what he's actually like comes forth like a flood from the pages of the Bible, and it changes us, it actually changes us. Uh, not to mention, saves us. So the fact actually here that I think uh, God sends Jesus to find people, quote, in the hedges, I was thinking of this last, uh, uh, last uh, week, is I think reminiscent of how Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.8 hide in the trees from God after they sin against him. And, and then also I think how now he is going out to find us not to destroy us, but to, but to bring us in. I, I think if you look at Genesis 3 and Luke 14 as bookends of the Bible, the resolution of the problem of Genesis 3 is just breathtaking. Genesis 3 says sin leads us to hide from God. And Luke 14 says God came to find us as we were hiding in love while we were still hiding in that same hiding place. In the garden, in the trees, or quote, in the hedges. This is, these are not random words the Bible throws out there just to say, oh, it's out there some t- somewhere in the country. Adam and Eve hid in the hedges. Humanity hid in the hedges when we sinned against God. We had shame. We realized we were naked. We hated ourselves. We realized we, were, we had severed the relationship we had with God. But God doesn't come to judge. He comes to invite to a dinner. He comes to look for us in the place of hiding and, and to bring us in. But, but here's the thing. If you, and I, I mean, 
we, we could talk about the tension about that all day, but like, if you sense a little bit in there that there is a tension or almost an injustice, then I think you're starting to feel it right because it's not like it was without cost that God brought us in, right? It's kind of, I mean, if we value justice and being right over being wrong, value, value fairness, and it's unfair that God brought in people hiding in the hedges. It's unfair that God saved us. We did not deserve it. We are unfairly, you and I, saved. That's what the Bible, that's why grace is grace and not karma in the Bible. But that's why I think seeing there was cost here is so important. It cost God to throw the party. It cost God to make the dinner. It cost God to bring in people from the hedges, his enemies. It cost God to forgive. You see, in this parable, God is the host. And Jesus is the servant, yes. But Jesus is also the food. He's the bread. He's the lamb who is slaughtered. And grace is to be received by the poor who couldn't buy it, the crippled who couldn't walk to it, the blind who couldn't see it, and the lost who couldn't find it. That is the gospel. That's your story. And if you're not saved yet, that's what God holds out to you right now as I speak. You are those things, but good news. I'm going out and grabbing your hand, leading you as the blind to, to the dinner so you can eat. Do you guys remember in the Old Testament when David had that meal for his enemy's grandson, Mephibosheth, who was crippled? 2 Samuel 9, kind of a cool image of this, but all kinds of grace there. But it's the same thing. Jesus is like David. He's the second David. He's throwing a dinner party, and he wants, like David said, who else can I show kindness to that I haven't yet? Which person out there can I share my kindness with? That's a question he asks. And they're like, oh, there's this really bad cripple that no one wants to be around because he smells and he can't move and he's kind of just ugly to look at. Oh, and he's your enemy's grandson. David's like, invite him. This is what God is like. Because he died on a cross for your sins, because he wrote through that, that's how he presents this grace. It's not around it, it's through that that the invitation comes. It's a grace, great, great cost to himself. And so, to go back to the beginning uh, just for a minute, Jesus starts, remember, by saying, show this type of hospitality to these types of people. Remember how he started? He didn't start with a parable, he started with just this little bit of like teaching, right? At dinner. Show this type of hospitality to these types of people. But here's the kicker. I mean, I don't know if you guys felt this or not. I want to try to help you feel this if you didn't. But if you think about what is he actually saying we should do there, what kind of hospitality actually is that, I think the kicker is none of us in the room have ever shown that kind of hospitality that Jesus lays out here. Who has actually done that? Rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe, maybe one of you has. But, but if you start, if you start to like grade yourself on doing it or not, then the question becomes, well, is once enough? Does Jesus say that? Is twice enough? What about our motive? Do we have to want to do it for it to be good, or can we do it begrudgingly? What about that? Is a thousand times enough? See, all of a sudden, this becomes a two-by-four that beats you over the head if you treat it like, I have to do this or I'm not saved. 
It's not what Jesus is saying. He's holding it out like a high, he does this, right, in, in his ministry, like a 30-foot tall hurdle on a racetrack, you know? And it's like, these are the banquets of the kingdom I want, but here's the rub. You can't do it, or you, you haven't done it, at least. And so people are kind of left, well, what's the point? Is the point that we shouldn't try? No, that's not the point. We can certainly try. But does this mean we're damned if we haven't done it well or enough or with the right motive? No, that's not the point either. The point is, this parable is not ultimately about you. It's about someone much greater than us, with much more love, and the ability to to carry weighty parables like this on his shoulders where it would just crush us underneath the weight of them. This is a parable about Jesus. That's what it means. You, it means you and I, were not God's friends, but his enemies. You and I were not his neighbors, but strangers. And yet, you and I were brought in with fierce, loving intentionality at the highest of cost to himself. And that's why this invitation becomes so sweet. When, when the servant, Jesus, goes out and says, come, for everything is now ready. I mean, what do you guys notice about this invitation? I notice the word everything. Everything's done. Nothing to add. God doesn't say, I'll take care of dinner if you can bring dessert. We do that, right? That's not wrong, but that's not what the banquet of the kingdom is like. I'll do dinner, you do dessert. We can't give to God. God says everything is ready. Everything means everything. It doesn't say mostly ready. We think, oh, shoot, well, what has to be done? You know, what I have to do then? The dinner of your salvation is ready through Christ. It's, it reminds me of this, something Jesus said right before he died. It's finished. It's done. It's not mostly finished. It's not kind of finished. It's not in process. Gosh, that'd be the worst news ever, right? If Jesus said right before he died, in process, you know? And we'd be like, that's the worst news ever. I mean, we would have to start doing the heavy lifting if he said that, right? Do you believe this, do you believe this or not? That, that, do I believe this? Do, do we believe this or not, right? Do you hear this bounce around in your brain every single day? Do you see it play out in, in love shown to each other in the church? Do we sing it? Do we eat it, you know, in communion? I mean, these are, this is, this is the question. This is, but this is the warning, too, because the parable says not all who are invited will enter. We can't dodge that, right? Not all who are invited will enter. Not all, the, all those who start well will finish well. Only those who persevere with the invitation of the gospel in hand to the end will enter. And so, be warned, but also be encouraged that the, the solution, the crux, is not try harder to clean your life up. The solution is just don't let go of the invitation. That's it. Right? If you push what he's saying to the end, it's don't let go of the invitation. Don't let go of the invitation to eat of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the servant of God who came to lay his life down for us that we might be brought in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it means for us, the warning, the grace, the beauty, the complexity. 
Thank you that you are the heavy lifter of this passage, things we could never, and if we're honest with ourselves, things we have never really done. This is way more than about generosity and kindness. This is about non-payment. This is about showing love to people that may threaten our lives or might be dangerous to have in our house for the sake of our kids. We have not done this. Yeah, at the same time, you have. You have done this at the highest level because we were the dangerous ones. We were the threats. We even killed you by nailing you to a tree. We were there, all of us, spiritually speaking. We have all rejected God. We've all gone our own way, and you stayed faithful to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you used our evil for great good. You died on a tree. You said it's finished. There's nothing more to add. No law-keeping, no morality, no moralisms, no trophies, no mountain climbing, no ladder climbing, no tower building. None of that. God, save us from that. Uh, So we might actually be people that get over ourselves and actually love each other rather than trying to compete with one another and being jerks in the process. So change us, God, from the inside out. Give us the fruit of the Spirit that comes through belief, uh, not through works, and, uh, and be at work in our city and our church. In Christ's name, amen.